Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host, Edmar Ferreira, will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Sebastian Bakhti, doctor, a classically trained musician, founder and CEO of Excel. So hi, I'm here today with Sebastian from Excel. Pretty excited for the conversation. So please, Sebastian, introduce us a little bit about what you guys do and what is, are your plans for the future. Yeah, thank you, Edma, for having me. Um, so I'm, I'm Sebastian Bakhti, and I'm founder and CEO of Excel. And at Excel, we are doing early pain-free cancer detection we uh, do this in a slightly different approach to other companies. And our vision is to, um, well, rid the world of unnecessary cancer deaths. Because um, as we all know, cancer is now the second greatest killer on the planet. It's on the rise to become the number one killer on the planet. And um, we have over 200 different cancers, but only one screening method that really works, which is the PAP test for cervical cancer. And at Excel, we were asking ourselves six years ago, what if we can scale what the PAP test does to the other 200 cancers? And again, we have to maybe talk a little bit more about the PAP test. The PAP test is a very simple test developed a long time ago by the famous um, Greek-American pathologist, Papa Nicolaou. And it took him a decade to do that. But I want to say from a perspective of today where we have access to unbelievable technology that he didn't have, from a perspective of today, it's probably, you want to say, the only thing he did is to find out that cancer cells look different from normal cells, and he applied that. And that's what the pap test is. You, you, you do a pap smear, and if you have atypical cells, you have cancer. It is the only standalone test that diagnoses cancer. There's no other test standalone that diagnoses cancer. When was this developed? He published his, the basis of what became the PAP test was Atlas of Exfoliative uh, Cytology. Atlas of Exfoliative Cytology published in 1954 oh. after a decade of research into these cells and drawing them one by one. And still the most used today? Absolutely. So uh, in the States, you have actually a cytoscreening school, so you can become a certified cytoscreener. And uh, in America, you have, I think about six, is that right? Anyway, they're running about 20 to 30 million pub tests a year. And in countries that have been able, because they have the resources in the high-income countries that have been able to roll out pub test, um, mortality of cervical carcinoma is virtually zero. It's gone because it's caught early. And the effectiveness of this screening test is unbelievable. And even more unbelievable when you, when you look at the data of the PAP test itself, because we'd like to talk about accuracy, sensitivity, specificity, et cetera, and diagnostics. And we are now, nowadays primed to look because the DNA tests tell us we can be 100%, nearly 100% accurate. The PAP test is not. PAP test is maybe 70% accurate. It uh, probably misses... 20 to 40% of cancers, depending on where you screen. But it is very easy to perform. It is very accessible for everybody. It's not invasive, really. 
and it's rolled out. And uh, this combination uh, is what makes it what makes it so successful. So uh, there are studies that show if you offer the pap test to women during their reproductive years, you can once, only once, you already lower the mortality of cervical carcinoma by nearly 50% because it catches so much. So what we learned from this is that firstly, of course, you know, if you manage to catch that cell, which is atypical, it tells you a huge lot, which is that you have cancer, you have to do something. And if you manage to make it accessible, the technology to catch that cell, then you can have true impact on the population level. And this impact on the population level, I also have a background in, in public health. Uh, this impact on the population level, um, we tend to forget. We look at the test performance, where we have to look at what does it, can it, what can a test achieve on the population level? So that's very important. And um, that's something the PAP test has been able to do to perfection. Now, as I said, it finds atypical cells and thereby detects cancer. And the fascinating thing is that not only Papa Nicolau, but subsequent generations of pathologists have observed atypical cells shed from other cancers in the blood of patients during early cancer. And that's because, um, of course, cancers are very dependent on good blood flow. Otherwise, they cannot grow. They need blood to bring it nutrients to grow. And then they build their own blood vessels to grow aggressively. So they are in very close contact with the blood circulation. And it is kind of logical that they will shed cells, cancer cells, into the bloodstream. But there hasn't been any technology to detect atypical cells in the bloodstream on a routine basis in pathology. So when we were asking the question, uh, how can we scale what the PAP test does, the other 200 cancers, we want to focus on this difficult challenge of to detect them reliably in the bloodstream for the other cancers. And why we thought this was quite, that was quite simple because five years, my first five years as an entrepreneur, I had developed a cell separator. I was here in Thailand with a grant from the German Research Foundation. Um, Working for two, three years, uh, we developed a cell separator, uh, which was working very efficiently to separate cells from a cell suspension. So we thought we can probably tweak it since we developed it. We could tweak anything on the cell separator to, to remove healthy cells and look at what's left. Because theoretically, if you remove healthy cells and you're healthy, there shouldn't be anything left, right? But if you have cancer, there might be something left according to the old books out there in pathology. And also, of course, to a huge body of scientific evidence. For Just one thing to, to make clear. The PAP test only works in one type of cancer. Yes, correct for the PAP test. But the technology of detecting atypical cells with the same uh, approach, like in the PAP smears, also used, for example, for bronchial lavage, when you have suspected lung cancer, they, they wash your lungs, which is a very painful process, um, and wash out some cells, and they look at the cells and... and they will see atypical cells and say, you probably have lung cancer. They will use it for cells from urine from to look for bladder cancer, any any cancer in the urinary tract system. They will do it in liquor, CNS malignancies. They'll also do it in pleural effusion. So the liquid between the lung and the rib cage, you can puncture that and look at atypical cells. Or So in short, they can do it for any body fluid except for uh, cells from the cervix is not very convenient to reach, so you cannot scale that up into into uh, into a good screening test maybe with the exception of urinary tract cancers mean if with blood would allow you to do with all types of cancer and it would be like less invasive 
like to do that instead of doing all. Right. It takes a 10 milliliter blood sample. So giving 10 milliliters blood for most people, it's not a big issue, uh, yeah. not a big deal. And uh, just to finish the, the answer to your question is um, that, that the, this discipline in pathology, which is looking at these cells, is called cytology. So the cytopathologists are entrusted with diagnosing cancer from body fluids and from cell suspensions of the body. But they don't do that from blood because the atypical cells in blood are too rare to do it on a routine basis. So, um, yeah, as I said, we had developed the cell separator and thought if we tweak it, then we can, you know, make the, um, the removal of healthy cells really efficient. You have to remove the haystack and then bring out the needle on a reliable basis and then apply what we know, what pathology knows um, about atypical cells to the few cells that are left, we should be able to, you know, um, at least have a good shot at, at cancer screening. So that's how we set out. And that's how, how I got into Weissbinator in 2000. That was end of 2014, the YC interview. And then 15, we went into Y Combinator. And it was with the promise that we do early cancer screening by removing healthy cells and detecting atypical cells in the blood. And I had first evidence that it may work. But what I didn't know then is that it would require a lot more than that to do that on a routine basis. Because as many other companies and some of our competitors probably think, you know, you have a cell separator and then you isolate the cells and that's great. The problem is if you have a few cells in your vial, it doesn't really help because you have to still, you don't see them with your eye. You have to do something with them to make sure that they're atypical. And um, we were betting on microscopy. And of course, it turns out to put a few cells on a microscope slide and then find them on the microscope slide is not that easy to do reliably. So we had to um, develop uh, improved what we call immunostaining. So to characterize the cells with all the antigens that may be cancer, not cancer, and to bring out the morphology. So the looks of the cells, which tells us so much about if they are cancer cells or, or healthy cells. Um, uh, we had to really optimize that to make very robust and reliable. We had to optimize not to lose cells at the many steps it needs to, to, to do this process. And that was the next step. Then I thought after we optimized all this and I could find cells in the microscope in my prostate cancer patients, okay, now we can find cancer. But then the next step, of course, is that you have to scale it and um, manual cytoscreening, so manually looking for all these single cells is extremely laborious. It us... Uh, so the next challenge is uh, how to digitalize these slides, to scan the slides. And it turns out, which I didn't know, was that uh, fluorescent scanners nowadays are still very slow, much too slow for routine use. If you tell any pathologist, do some fluorescence microscopy and scanning, they start running away from you because it's so laborious and horrible. So we had to solve that problem, which we did more recently with our uh, last patents, which is, I think, uh, really the fastest the world's fastest fluorescent scanner, and now we're plugging it, plugging in AI to automatically find these cells. So by now, five years after I got into Y Combinator, we finally have the platform assembled, which takes us all the way from the blood tube to AI-powered cytoscreening on scanned slides uh, and scanned in a, in a reasonable time frame. So. Um, that's what we're doing now. That's what we can offer now. And the next step of it would be like a cytologist would look at it as they would do with the more traditional tests. Yes. And make the final decision if it's like a 
based on all the variables like the form of the cell and, and the antigens, if it's a cancer cell or not present there. Yeah, yeah. So that's the current stage of where we are exactly. We isolate the cells, we uh, scan the slides, we, we have a pre-selection by AI, and the AI then suggests to the pathology to get cell 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. So, um, that, that's a very important step to have the human still involved because regulatory-wise, still trust humans more than AI in the future. And you, you were asking what, what is happening in 10 years. That can change, and I think it's going to change more rapidly than we think. But it's, this change is um, heavily determined by what regulatory will allow us to do, probably more than what technology can do. How long are you from having this, like, using in a clinical setting? We actually, uh, we, we're offering this in Thailand through Thailand's biggest private hospital chain, Southeast Asia's biggest private hospital chain, Meta Bangkok Hospital. Um, you can get that in any hospital here. Um, they have uh, over 80 hospitals in, in Thailand. And uh, we will launch it. Uh, so we're running the last confirmatory um, studies in Singapore. We launch it in Singapore if all goes well, pending a few issues with COVID, of course. Um, next year, first half of next year, I think is realistic. And then we'll be available in Singapore as well. After that, we are um, already uh, setting up in Europe, finding out what we have to do there. And then, of course, the US. And what do you think, like, this process of detecting cancer would look like if you guys are really, really, really successful in 10 years? Like, what change in the world if this, if everything goes goes well, like, and I talk to you 10 years from now, what changed? <laughs> the next, take it from now, right? What are the next steps to get to a world with much less cancer, not cancer-free in 10 years? At the moment, what we're doing is our test here in Thailand is a prostate, an adjunct prostate cancer test. So people with suspected prostate cancer, more PSA going up, a suspicious MRI can take the test. And if we, if we find atypical cells, probably bad. And if we don't find atypical cells, it's actually also, it's probably okay. Yeah. The convenient thing yeah. is repeated after three, four, five, six months, depending to make sure you send. So that's very important because maybe briefly talking about prostate cancer, prostate cancer has a diagnostic cascade or escalation at the moment. You're fine, but you have your PSA checked in one of these checkups. Suddenly you discover it's going up. It's maybe heading over four, then people get nervous because it could be prostate cancer and you get really nopsy, but 90% of all prostate biopsies are unnecessary because there's no cancer or no aggressive cancer. Percent. So we are talking that we're actually doing a million biopsies less than 200,000 cancers, which is a huge waste, not only of money, but of pain and all the rest of it. In addition, the prostate biopsies it's not like one biopsy, it's at least 12 cores, I say. Usually it's more than that. It's a dirty biopsy down there, so the complication rate is uh, quite high, 10% complications. Most of them harmless, of course, but some serious. So not something you want and um, definitely to be improved. Then uh, MRI has moved into this diagnostic escalation because MRI can, of course, visualize what's in the prostate, but MRI is also expensive. It's, it's slow. It needs a lot of resources. You need a radiologist, a radiologist and a technician and the patient holding still for an hour. Um, and it's still 25% false negative. <laughs> so it's, oh, it's, not, it's the best we have, but it's not good. So there is a, a huge need for improved tests and that's what urologists have been telling us. How much in false negative you, you get with, with your process? 
So we have uh, we, we are talking about the um, negative and positive predictive values uh, in the in the first study here. We've seen that we can double the positive predictive value of PSA. That means double the positive predictive value. That means your test is positive, patient has cancer. You double the PPV, you can have the unnecessary biopsies. Oh, I see. NPV, so you, the test is negative, you don't have cancer, was at um, 90%, uh, which means that, yeah, if you don't have, if, if the test is negative, you usually don't have cancer. And that's only one test applied, right? So if you you can compensate for short. And yeah, I like to say you have to keep in mind the PAP test, far from perfect, but because it can be applied in pain-free times. Yeah, it, it has this amazing info. That's what we're doing now. And what I want to explain answering your question is we are actually this, the, the first level testing is PSA. We are second level, right? So we are working in pre-selected risk groups. We also have first data in lung cancer. In lung cancer, you do the same. Patients with suspected lung cancer get our test. And then we compare it with a, with a biopsy result. We can see that we can find cancer cells in the blood in many patients with lung cancer, the, the cohort is still too small to have a statistical, um, to have, really have statistical data. But we definitely find the cells. And that's, again, a second-level test in patients with suspected cancer. What we, where we need to get to in 10 years is to move to the first level, where Excel can be used as a general screening test in people without symptoms. That's like the top discipline of screening, which, which not many tests actually can do. And in fact, while I just said PSA is used, PSA is used, but it's uh, very controversially used because it creates all these false positives and all this. Yeah. Worry and. Yeah. The net yeah. benefit on the population is absolutely unclear. It's probably negative because there are too many, too much pain, too much yeah. money, et cetera, et cetera, to find the cancer. So the only test that works on a, as a first level test is really the pap smear. That's why I say pap smear is the only one which is crazy if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. So that is really the challenge to get to the first level, and that's what we're working at. And that's where I think with the help of our process and then AI really meticulously looking at the single cell level and understanding every pixel of that image will get us very far. Would it be possible in that sense to do, like, since it's non-invasive, it would be, like, routinely doing those tests to see, like, there's something wrong in the future, like getting like patients to do that, like from time to time, repeating the test and just keeping. Absolutely. That, that's what you need to do, right? I mean, PAP test is recommended, I think, every two years, every three years. Some people do it yeah. every year. But a blood test you would want to do every year. Um, I, I already yeah. do it. Some of us already do it regularly yeah. because just see what we see. Um, so far, yeah. all is good. Um, once you've seen these cells, I mean, the, the visual, you, we get this visual of atypical cells. It's so striking and just like seeing is believing. Um, and I know it's difficult to believe, but once you see it, you start believing it. Yeah. And another question for you as a doctor, like what is the impact of the, like I imagine there is big, but I can't, I can measure like of uh, detecting earlier, a cancer earlier versus detecting it later. Like what can be done earlier that can't be done later and things like that. It's actually very simple. If you want to read into this, uh, anybody can. You, you just go to one of the, probably the American uh, Cancer Association. It's always the, very easily understandable. And they have they have tables with a five-year survival rate. That's the standard thing. So it just gives you the percentage of patients diagnosed with a particular cancer 
how many percent are alive after five years. And depending on the type of cancer, it can be very different, right? So if you, if you have lung cancer, it's actually pretty bad. If you have prostate cancer, it's actually pretty good. If you have something like meningoblastoma, it's zero. Um, it depends what it is. That is a huge difference. Usually cancers found at stage one, no matter which cancer, have excellent survival rates. But if it's stage four, in many cases, you're just dead. Your probability is nearly zero to survive. So <clears throat> that tells us the earlier we find the cancer, the better is the outcome. Now, why is the outcome better? The, usually, if it's, a, if, it's a, if it's a stage one ca cancer, simple surgery can cure it. You, you cut it out, it hasn't spread, and it's gone. Um, because, I mean, we have to remind ourselves that cancer probably always happens in a way in the body because it's kind of a, it's the price we pay that we can actually get very old and don't break down. Like no, no machine can run for 70, 80, 90 years without breaking yeah. down. But humans, And uh, if the self-renewal goes wrong, then we have to go to the garage and get fixed, <laughs> but early. <laughs> and thinking about this uh, solution, like, who would be your typical customer? Like the hospital, the labs, who do the test? Like what's, what's your thinking about your go-to-market strategy? So if you look at the potential savings for health systems, are definitely one, the, the biggest customer, because, I mean, responsible health systems who actually look after the population health of the population, they implement screening uh, tests At the same time, I think we see, at least in certain areas of the world, we see a shift from on certain groups of people. We see a shift that people managing their health a lot more proactively and think longer term about their health. Traditionally, humans would only go to the doctor when it's really something is really wrong, right? Yeah. And that shifts in people. So they actually try to not, not get to that point. Um, and of course, these people would uh, probably want screening tests. How much would cost a screening test? Do, do you guys have a, a prediction of that? Yeah. Here we're in the market for about $300 at the moment, three, $400. In five years, we'll be below 15. And what's in terms of like go to market strategy? Like you guys are already testing it in, in some hospitals and systems now, what, what would be like the next level in your planning to deploy the solution? What we are really looking at now is uh, reimbursement processes. Uh, because if you want to tap the biggest customers, which are health systems, you need reimbursement. And that's an extremely um, intricate environment to be in because reimbursement is always at the national level. So every country has its own rules, regulations, and ways of reimbursing. So uh, th I think that's one of the big challenges for, for biotech, smaller biotech companies to, to handle that. And that's a learning process, a painful learning process we've been going through for the past year or two. And uh, we, we are slowly seeing the light at the tunnel, where to do what, how. <laughs> but it's going to take some time because it's not only what governments want to see, but it's also, it's, it's a combination, right? You have the other challenges. You have so many stakeholders in health. You have the doctors, the insurances, the patients. And uh, you need to get it right on, on, on all levels. When you think about your company all these years in pitches, talking with people, investors or, or the whole world, what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about what your guys are doing? What people tend to get wrong when you try to explain what you do? I don't know if they get it wrong, but of course it sounds a bit unbelievable that, you know, the vision is really big and 
three years ago, we were very small, based out of Thailand and Southeast Asia. And if I, you know, run around America, and you're just like, really? I mean, why, why, why there? Why are you? How? What are atypical cells? I talked about that. It's why, why don't you do mass sequencing and deep sequencing and all this stuff? It's like, no, because, you know, cells are how it works. Pathology is, the pathologists are the people who diagnose cancer. Nobody else, if you go around them, it's not going to work. They they hold the floor. You cannot go around pathologists, and they like atypical cells. They know exactly what is when is the cell atypical and when not. You just have to hold it in front of their nose, and then that that sounded. I think it sounded a bit. Obviously, it, it, it's 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 very ambitious. Um, but we're slowly slowly making inroads with the pathologists who also didn't believe it, of course. Um, <laughs> and then with the investors, they are obviously getting more interested now because we have more to show. I mean, five years ago, I didn't have anything to show, of course. Why would you believe it? Yeah, I think that considering that for like most tech investors and, and even most VCs, it's a little bit different market and you need to understand it a little bit better how it yeah. works. Yeah. So it's yeah. like how the process So like a, a lot of like, I think a lot of people believe we are more advanced now than we are really in most tests and things like that. Yeah. <laughs> most people think that, that things are more automatic and advanced right. than they really right. are. Right. And then when you tell them that it's not and that you are doing it now, they get a little bit surprised by that. Like, what? <laughs> it's yeah. still like yeah. tests from the 50s people are doing it today. Like, why would not have like some high tech and things like that? And then, What's happening now if the pap test is not that the pap test is going to get changed. The only thing that's yeah. happening is that they try to plug AI on top to make it easier to save some labor. But the pap yeah. test works. Nobody wants to abolish it. It's not possible to yeah. abolish it. So, you know, I mean, there's this concept of incremental improvement as opposed to total disruption because what we think is total disruption is usually not, didn't come yeah. from Paul and Evan. It's incremental yeah. improvement. I got it that investors like really were. And then also what I understand now better is that looking back five years, I mean, you need to be a very patient investor to invest into something like this. And five years ago, anybody who even, I think even if you understood, he was like, even if the guy's going to make it, that's beyond my investment horizon because I can't sit around for the next, you know, yeah. years and wait. I like your point about the disruption and the, in the increment because we are so used on the more like software and even hardware to think about disruption in a way. Like you can't be that disruptive on like a medical device or a test because it, it would be careless on your part. Like you, you can't just, the, the risk is too big to do for most things. And, and also, I mean, if you disrupt something in tech, sometimes... I don't know, I'm not the tech sphere, but take Google. They just had a better search algorithm, as I understand, and yeah. killed everything because it was just better, right? But pathology has been around for 100 years. I know exactly what cancer is. They're, I mean, they know best what cancer is, and there are really a lot of brains looking at this. Like, I think yeah. there are a lot more brains having looked at medicine and pathology than at search algorithms, at least, you know, yeah. when Google happened. So to me, it makes sense to build on something that works and try and, take the best you can learn from it and then apply it to a problem that yeah. can probably yeah. solve something with a similar approach. Um, yeah. The other nice thing is, of course, that um, with the whole cytology pathology, that works everywhere on the planet. And shouldn't forget yeah. that it works yeah. in, you know, it works in Australia, it works in Indonesia, it works in Singapore and Thailand, and you can go around. It, it works in, in Greenland. doesn't matter. There's no, the cells are always atypical. And 
the atypical cells between populations are also the same morphologically. Because if you go into genetic diagnostics, it becomes very complicated, which ethnicity has which pattern, and you need to build the whole database from scratch. It's difficult, right? And then still you have that data point, and the pathologist will go like, yeah, okay, but, you know, I can't say anything before yeah. I see this. And still, you, you already, for the, the cytology, you, you have the, the doctors on the point of care to do the, the final exams and look at it. And people tend to trust their doctors a lot. So I think this makes a big difference. That's the other thing, because, I mean, frankly speaking, five years ago, it was not clear at all who are the main stakeholders, who are the gatekeepers you know, we, we will have to talk to. But And then we had a prostate test. If you have a prostate test, we talk to urologists and say, like, yeah, all fine, okay, finding cancer, prostate cancer earlier, and to decide which one is aggressive, which one is all fine. What's the pathologist saying? <laughs> like, yeah. they, you need to take pathology into the equation. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense, makes sense. And since you have your background as a doctor, like what medicine knowledge or skill or lesson did you use as being a startup founder in CEO? Is anything that helped doing this uh, and starting a company or, or it would, you needed to start everything from scratch? There's some, some things that, some lessons that you, that you transfer over or it's just a new beginning? No, I mean, medicine is an amazing thing to learn. I always found it very fascinating because you learn stuff about yourself. When I was a student, <clears throat> I think every medical student goes through that. You, you learn something new every day and you go like, uh, yeah, do I have that too? <laughs> <laughs> and so you learn something about yourself every day or potentially about yourself, but very close to what you say. Yeah? And the other thing in medicine is that it's extremely broad. It encompasses all the sciences and the a chemist would say, yeah, very superficially. Physicists would say very superficially. It is very superficially, but you get access to subject. You have biochemistry, biophysics, anything, plus a bit of humanities. I mean, uh, medical sociology, medical psychology. Back then, I didn't really appreciate it so much because I was very much on the science side of life. But now I appreciate that, you know, you're treating patients who are humans. They're not machines. I see when I talk to, I don't want to generalize, but sometimes you notice that this understanding that we are doing something for humans and not machines, I find that lacking in some, in some other startups, quite frankly, or, or competitors. They, yeah. They're very, they're yeah. robot approach, right? but it's, it's not, you know, you have to ask yourself, what's the patient afraid of? How does your test help the patient? When does it help? What message do you need to give the patient to improve his, his life? And that's not only a data point, usually. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's very helpful to understand that. So that's a good thing. Of course, the, the shortcomings was, uh, was uh, <laughs> when I started my first company before the Excel, as we know, is uh, today, I, I had this first angel from, from Thailand who was the director of the second largest bank. And he gave me some money. And then he said, yeah, but we should have, you know, regular meetings, board meetings, so I can see what you do with my money. I said, like, fine, no problem. And yeah, please make a, you know, make a budget so we can talk about what you do with my money. Like, yeah, I'll make a budget. So I had a little spreadsheet with me and there was like, you know, I don't know, the ex you know, reagents and the uh, centrifuge maintenance and one staff cost. Did you make the budget? Here's my budget. CapEx and OPEX and what's your income statement? It's like, what? 
<laughs> I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> he looked at me, I mean, director of a bank, he looked at me like, oh, my Lord, what did I get into here? And then um, um, asked, his, asked one of his staff to, to give me a book of accounting. <laughs> oh. So I had to learn, I, mean, I had to actually read about what is accounting because I had no idea. So these were the things that, it was, it's kind of ridiculous, but you had, doing the career I did, I had no idea about accounting. And I still can't understand that you can actually go to what I think were good schools, high schools, universities, yeah. and they never talked to you about accounting. Like, what's an income statement? I mean, it's that, that, that's really not income statement. Yeah, yeah, it's not thought. Yeah. Um, so it teaches you a lot, I think, if you once you understand what it is about. Um, so those were the early lessons I learned. And what's your routine like today? I don't think it's any routine. <laughs> solving new challenges every day. No, seriously, it's, um, that's what I love as a startup founder. There's no routine. I mean, it could be routine for one week, but the next one is different. So we've grown a lot, actually, for where I come from. So I started, obviously, I started alone. Then with one assistant, then with two assistants uh, the, the first years. And then one year ago, I had, um, here in the lab, we had four people one regular bit admin. We doubled the staff this last year with our C plus round. And uh, my job has is becoming to make sure that, you know, we grow the team together. It's amazing how, how it all changes. Make sure that everybody is stays focused on what he has to do. So we're using the uh, OKR, uh, objective key result um, system, and we implement use software to make sure that we don't lose track of what people are doing. Because a year ago, I could remember what everybody was doing. Now I can't. So we have to kind of act on it. And then, of course, with COVID, the team is split up all over the place. So I have currently have two people in Singapore. But then our, um, our work in Singapore is heavily supported by the Diagnostics Development Hub of Singapore, which is really a great, amazing organization. So they have another five people on our project. And we work together as a team. So two of our people there, five of them. Uh, and then we have uh, uh, one in Australia, one in Germany at the moment. And at the Thai staff, so I have to make sure that, that you know, everybody stays aligned. We communicate problems early. I always say, like, I don't need to talk to you every day, but, you know, if you have a problem, I need to know it immediately. So communicate the problems early, which which takes a lot of you have to insist because people don't like to talk about problems right? naturally. Yeah. And do you miss spending more time on the, on the science aspect of the business or not? I still do. So our essay is great, but of course uh, we can always improve it. We have to think about how to now automate it, which requires revalidating some wet lab steps, uh, wet lab steps. We had to build the scanner, which is not wet lab, but the scanner is, um, it's our, fourth and fifth patent covering the scanner and the AI. That was great fun though. A year to uh, we actually built that here with a young engineer. Uh, we built the prototype and the triangle now we are we are building one in Germany, Singapore, copying the one here. So I still I think I'll never stop doing that because I just need to <laughs> I find it really relaxing to just tinker something once in a while. Otherwise we go busy. But otherwise to, uh, maybe also answering that question is uh what I'm lucky with is what I have two, we have many people now here, but two of the staff have been with me really long, the longest one over six years. So from the very start of Excel Cancer. And um, he came to me when she was, it was just a second job, quite young. So 
when we sit together and go through an experimental procedure, she executes it. I leave her freedom because sometimes you learn from mistakes and other people's mistakes. They discover something you hadn't thought about, right? So I, I just outline that what I want to do, where I want to go. And, and she designs the experiment and shows it to me. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. And then we get together and it's beautiful because she remembers every single step. Like my pet tip looked a little redder yeah. than other people. God knows what. I mean, really, really detailed. So you can actually, it's like you can work in the lab through somebody, but to build that relationship takes a long time, but it's totally worth it. What do you think we as society in general could do to accelerate the technological progress? I, as a society, I would think, I don't have any data for that, but I would think the technological progress now is faster than ever before, I guess. On the other hand, you're right that if you think about breakthroughs in medicine, it's a very depressing thought because if you think about it, the last big breakthrough in medicine was what? Infectious disease. Yeah. In terms of the previous century, um, before Bering came up with vaccination and Fleming with penicillin, 30% of kids died before the age of 10 and the mothers died in, 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 during childbirth, right? So when they came up with the way to fight infectious disease, that was really, really extending lives. And actually, I don't like say, saying save life anymore because you always die. The question is what happens between your birth and your death and quality of life. So they really added dalis. They, they added a lot of quality life years to people's lives, right? But after that, Oh, the cancer therapies, they extend lives. Okay, leukemia is different. They, uh, there were some breakthroughs. But in general, um, the progress is not as much as we would like it to have. Why is it? I don't know. I suppose cancer is really tricky. <laughs> yeah. I do think that many people have a very theoretical approach and much too you know, molecular, very narrow-minded approach, looking at one molecule to do what, but I mean, you know, there's what we can do as a society. I think one problem is that how we measure success in science is by publications and publications are not a good way to measure true progress. We don't have any other better way at the moment, but it's not, I don't think that that, that really doesn't help. Do you think that the incentives get up and get screwed because we focus so much on, on publication? Yes. Because this would make it the direction of research like... Yeah, the, the question is just what else can we do, right? Yeah. What else can we do? But certainly in the old days, you were not under so much publication pressure. If you look at the old papers, like from the 50s, there's some, some of my favorite papers are there, that they, how they worked to write that paper must have taken ages, but they were apparently still funded, right? That wouldn't happen today. You can't take ages to write one paper. It's not, not, not allowed. Yeah. You need to. Many papers are so superficial. So like the long-term view of the research, like the thing that's getting shorter, the, the, the time spent or the time spent view of each research, like that the researchers need to think more shorter term instead of long term. I have that feeling. I mean, I didn't live, I didn't do research. I didn't live and I didn't, didn't do research 50 years ago. <laughs> but from what I mean, my parents who are also uh, uh, doctors in, in, in research and from other people, the previous generations was very different. Medicine was different and research was different. It's a very complex field. I mean, I'm not really not the expert. I haven't had the time to think about <laughs> we to change, to improve this. And also, 
things change, right? So yeah. the old days, yeah. governments had the money to fund the research. Nowadays, startups can find money to do a lot of amazing research, which would have been impossible 50 years ago. So it's maybe just changing. Academics do their thing. And the applied and translational research has to be funded by private uh, companies. I mean, that would make sense in a way because the private companies have the pressure to do something about it. We are heading to, to the end. I have my two favorite and final questions, though. Like, first one, what are some of your favorite books on anything? Like, what, what are your favorite? Book question. Okay. <laughs> well, no, I have a whole... Actually, I have a little library in the company for people to read. I always hope people read it. But it's um, one of the most impressive ones recently was uh, uh, Silk Road's Peter Frankopan. Oh. He describes uh, political, nothing to do with medicine. But then it does have to do with medicine because the big plagues played a big role in how the world developed. So that, that was very mind-opening, I found. Another one, which I read a long time ago, but it comes to mind now maybe because I was thinking Silk Roads, is uh, 13, 1323. I forgot the name. It's, it's, it's a year long ago when China discovered the world, which describes how the Chinese fleet circumnavigated the world long before the Western world. Oh, this is interesting. That's a crazy book, yeah. And it only stopped because the emperor just decided it was too expensive and had the fleet kind of mothballed. That was it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you can actually show that the early maps we used in Europe to discover the new world, the new world, yeah. it's not the Chinese had actually drawn those maps. <laughs> and they, they got to Europe through the, through the, the trading routes along the Silk Road. Another one which is more medical is actually who we are. This is about how, how genetics, uh, human genetics shows us migration, the waves out of Africa and how we settled around the world, where the Neanderthal DNA comes into play. I'm quite fascinating as well. And then on the medicine side, I must say, uh, uh, reading now, there's not enough time to finish it right now, but um, about cancer, The Emperor of All Maladies, excellent book, History of Cancer. Oh, I heard about this one. Like it was recommended to me by a good friend of mine who is a, a doctor as well. Like told me it's really well written as well. Not only interesting, but well written as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's really easy to read, exciting to read, but full of amazing information and a lot about pathology. Actually, oh. uh, how pathology changed the world back then. And my last question to you: If you had the chance to send just one message. To every human on earth, what would it be? In these days, hmm, in these days, very generally, I would say one message. I would say try to keep your optimism that sun will rise again. <laughs> <laughs> amazing. Great farewell message. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was an amazing conversation. Really, really happy with it. I hope that in future episodes we can talk again to see the progress you guys will be making for sure thank you okay thanks edma have a good day there yeah thank you bye bye thanks for listening to the deep tech show if you enjoyed today's episode don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes follow the podcast on twitter at Deep Tech Daily to keep updated on what's next.